Acts chapter 20, or chapter, have I been saying 20 the whole, the whole time? Acts chapter 19, I'm sorry, uh, verse 21 through 41. Acts chapter 19. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read. Please follow along as I read. And actually, please stand with me if you would for the reading of God's Word. It reads this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to, uh, of, of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, but also, not only that this trade of ours may also come into, uh, into repute, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be disposed, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with con the, the conf this, this confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristar Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, church, I want to preach this morning to you on this text and under the title, When Repentance Turns a City Upside Down. When Repentance Turns a City Upside Down. You may be seated and let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this text. We thank You for Your Word. We ask that as we examine this story of how repentance of Your believers turned the city of Ephesus upside down, that you would see our own, that we would see our own need for repentance, and that it may look in such a way that really affects society and turns Baltimore City upside down. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. On March eleventh, twenty twenty, the world was thrust into a pandemic. Pan pandemic was declared. 
We all realized that COVID-19 was a, was, a, was a threat. And like one domino toppling over onto the next, within a few days, everything was shut down. And of course, in addition to the fear of the sickness and the death, potential death toll and the lives that could be lost, there was also a lot of questions on how this would affect the economy. You know, our economy has been built and still is built with the assumption that human beings interact with each other and go out and gather and go to restaurants and theaters and uh, hotels. And uh, so there was a lot of question marks around how this is all going to affect the economy. Now, as we look at this text here in Acts chapter 19, what we see is a similar kind of question as people are being converted to the gospel of Christianity. They're becoming Christians. And there's a question now as people are walking away from their old idols, how this is going to affect the economy. There's an actual trade here that has been affected in Ephesus because Christians are no longer worshiping the Gospels. The money of uh, businesses are hit not because of a virus, but because the Gospel is taking over Ephesus. Listen, the Gospel so changed believers that jobs were affected. I want you to wrap your minds around that. The gospel so changed believers that actual jobs were affected. In verse 27, just to point it out, it says, uh, this, is the, this is their concern, and there is danger, he says, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. Last week we began our study in Acts chapter 19, and what we saw last week, if you were here, if you remember, if not, you can listen to it online, uh, read the text ahead of time. Uh, What what you might remember is that uh, as a result of the gospel, people were being changed, they were becoming believers, and believers were actually confessing and divulging various practices that they had maybe even continued post-conversion, and when they were convicted of it, when they came to realize that the magic arts are nothing, when they came to realize that all of these artificial saviors are actually not saviors at all, when they came to realize that these fraudulent spiritualities are frauds, they stopped practicing them. And they built this massive bonfire and built million, uh, burnt millions of dollars of worth of magic books. They came to believe that Jesus was more valuable than anything this world can offer, and they turned to Jesus no matter the cost, and they saw that Jesus was worth everything. Now, we stopped at verse 20 last week, and I wanted to save the rest of the story for this week because it turns and it asks a little different question. The question that this week's passage asks us is this, how does the world respond to their response. How does Ephesus respond to this massive transformation taking place in the lives of believers? Now sometimes we might naively believe that when we get saved and when we're excited about Jesus that we're going to go and share that with everybody and the whole world around us is going to accept Jesus. Particularly, I see this often with new Christians. They're so passionate about Jesus, and rightly so. And they want to go and and share the gospel with the guys on the corner and their friends and their family members and their neighbors who all reject Jesus. And sometimes they are surprised that not everybody has the reaction to Jesus and the gospel message that they had. And if we're not prepared for the world's response to our response to Jesus, are you tracking with me? If we're not prepared for that, church, then we might get discouraged with Jesus. We might get discouraged in our own faith. Or worse, we might fall into despair or even burnout. So how does the world respond to the believer's change? Well, First, there's immediate backlash from a man named Demetrius and the craftsmen. 
In verses 21 and 22, as the text begins, Paul resolves to head out from Ephesus, where he's been doing this ministry, and to head to uh, uh, Jerusalem, through Macedonia, through Achaia. He, he wants to see Rome, which I don't think for Paul is tourism. I think it's, I need to get to Rome for gospel, uh, uh, the gospel's sake. Before he leaves Ephesus, he sends two helpers along uh, 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 ahead of him, Timothy and Erastus. And Paul's planning to leave Ephesus, but he, he somehow gets stuck behind for a couple extra days. There's a backlash that I don't even think Paul quite would have expected. It's similar to the story I told you some weeks ago of my friends who were ministering in South Baltimore and confronted a lot of the prostitution that was happening through ministering and loving the girls that were trapped in sex, sex trafficking. And as they're seeing some fruit, there was an unexpected backlash that came from the pimps. Meaning, you can't disrupt a sea of evil and, and pull out a haul of fish and not expect a tidal wave of, of, of backlash to come at you. And so Paul, he's, he's doing this good work in Ephesus, and if I was Paul, I'd be like, all right, Let's move on. Job well done. I'm pretty satisfied with what happened in Ephesus. And he turns around and he sees this tidal wave of persecution that's coming at him. And not only him, but coming at his friends as well. Coming at the Christians. Coming at these Ephesian Christians. And it comes from, it starts off with a man named Demetrius. Everybody say Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith. And if you were to Google today, don't do it now, I'd rather you just stay off the internet right now and listen and follow along in your Bibles, but later on, hop on the internet and Google Artemis Silver Shrines. And what you'll find is hundreds of examples of shrines that still exist in archaeological studies and research today in history. You can probably find them in museums. Uh, beautiful little shrines that are handcrafted of this god, a goddess, named Artemis, a Greek god. She was... Supposedly, according to Greek mythology, she was the daughter of Zeus. And there are hundreds of examples online of little statues that uh, exist today that would show you what they were dealing with back then. Throughout the Roman world, there were 33 official shrines to the goddess Artemis. However, Ephesus was the center of it all. In Ephesus, there was a temple that was built for the goddess of, uh, 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 named Artemis. And this temple was massive. Massive pillars. You can also look this up online. 60 feet tall. The temple was four to five football fields big. And an entire industry was built around Artemis. Now, since Artemis was considered to be the goddess of, of fertility and of hunting. They believed in their superstitious and mythological religion that they needed to have this statue of, of Artemis in their home and surround themselves with this worship of Artemis so that they might have success in, in, in childbearing, so that they might have success on the hunt. And for some, they might really believe, for many, if not most, that Artemis, the worship of Artemis, was really the difference between life and death. Now, you haven't grown up in ancient Ephesus, have you? You haven't grown up in this ancient world with, filled with Greek mythology, believing that Artemis is uh, an actual god and that Zeus is her actual father. And we don't, we, we don't I mean, this is so far removed from us today. But just for a moment, <laughs> excuse me, if you would, just kind of humbly remove yourself from 21st century and place yourself in this world that taught this stuff. And you really believed that, that your, your purchase of this little statue could mean that your baby's born safely and with health. <coughs> It, it would mean that you would have food and, uh, to eat after the hunt. It would mean the difference between life and death. Like, they, they were facing some real challenges here because the Christians are coming along saying that these gods 
which are idols, are no gods at all. That there is one true God, and He is the God of all. This God became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. He died to make things right between us and God. And as a matter of fact, these idols are distractions, and not only distractions, but an an affront to God. Because God is the God of fertility. God is the God of the hunt. God is the God of life and of death. And so, the, the, the trade of making these little statues is what? It's taking a hit. All of these Christians are being converted. And Demetrius comes along and says, hey, this is problematic. We're told in verse 24 that this trade brought him, quote, no little business at all to the craftsmen. Like, this was a big deal. And there were maybe hundreds of craftsmen that were employed throughout this trade, maybe under Demetrius. We don't know his position exactly who were making a profit off of this idolatry. Look at Demetrius' speech in verse 26. This is really what kicks it all off. He says in verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, since whom all Asia, uh, uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so at that, the craftsmen go mad. They are enraged. And the craftsmen together start this chant, and and it picks up throughout town. And the chant goes like this. They say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city then is in uproar. If you look at verse 29, it says the city was then thrown into confusion. That word confusion carries with it this idea of a disturbance of riotous persons. Madness is the response to Christian change in Ephesus. And it says they rushed into the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This this theater, this was different than the temple. This was another big building they had in Ephesus. And the theater would seat about 25,000 people. This was a massive building. Think of the Raven Stadium. And think of two of our own members dragged by the citizens of Baltimore City into the Raven Stadium. 25,000 people filling it. This would be horrifying. And so Paul, when he sees this happening, I'm sure his heart in some ways breaks for his two friends who have been drugged into this theater. This says, uh, but when Paul, in verse 30, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd... The disciples would not let him. They're like, Paul, you can't go in. And I'm sure that Paul is is feeling for his friends. I can only imagine uh, his desire to stand with his friends, but they urge him not to go. And of course, they know that his life is a threat. It says even the the Asiarchs, these are rulers of the province uh, province of Asia, even the Asiarchs who were his friends said to him, uh, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now this scene is, is wild, isn't it? Just a, a tidal wave of persecution that probably no one really fully expected. I can only imagine how Paul feels in this moment. And I'm encouraged by Paul's boldness. You know, uh, we don't have to run into uh, persecution. As a matter of fact, if you can avoid persecution, avoid it. You know, it, like, meaning if you can avoid violence, don't, don't put yourself out there to get your, your, your throat cut. However, with that said, with that said, Paul was never trying to avoid it. His friends blocked him from it, but he was so focused on standing in solidarity with his Christian brothers 
that Paul was willing to just go right into the middle of the crowd, come what may. Because Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is, is gain. So he's not afraid of persecution. Now, typical for a riot, not everybody knows exactly what they're angry about. So in verse 32, it says, some were crying one thing, and some were crying another. The assembly was in confusion. It says most didn't even know why they were there. Now, here's a little word of truth for you guys. When the mob comes against you, there will be people who hate you, and they don't even know why. There will be people who stand, speak out against you and stand against you and they don't even know what they're crying out against. You have just become the object of their wrath. And that's the case for this crowd in Ephesus. In verse 33, a man named Alexander is put forth. We don't know exactly who Alexander is. It could be Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4.14, who Paul said is one of his worst enemies, uh, who w- was affiliated with the church, but he was a false teacher. It could be him, and it would be interesting if it was him, because what that would say is this is somebody who was associated with the church, but he's also a coppersmith. So maybe he was like some sort of mediating uh, figure between these two bodies. However, when Alexander the Jew was put forth, the formerly disunited crowd now unites against him as well. What we see is that Jews are also in their mind the problem. Basically, anybody who would deny the worship of Artemis. And so now the crowd is united, and they join in the chant which the craftsmen began, which went, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They chant that over and over for two hours. We don't know all that goes down here. Luke moves pretty quickly through this. We do know that according to Romans 16 verse 4, that Ephesian Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, at one point risked their lives for Paul. And some theologians believe that maybe this was that moment. It's possible that many Christians during this time, during this two-hour time frame, uh, had their lives risked standing, unlike Peter when he denied Jesus, standing for Jesus and saying, yes, I am with him. Church, if there's one point that I would like to drive home, it's this. If the, Ephesians, if the Ephesian Christians thought that them becoming a Christian was going to make their life easier and better in this world, then they would have quickly given up the faith. Recently I saw on, on, online a local pastor talking about how they just received a 14-acre piece of property and building in immaculate condition. And he says, many people still don't believe it. He goes on to say, activate your faith and see what God will do. Look, there is a, this false teaching that won't go away. And that is that if you activate your faith that God will hook you up in this world. Let me ask you a question. Was the faith of these Ephesian Christians activated? Yes. Did it make their life in this world easier or harder? Did it give them more material things in this world or potentially remove material things from them? Probably the latter. This idea, first, that we activate our faith is false. The Holy Spirit activates our faith. But this idea that faith is some kind of tool that we can use to activate, and if you can somehow activate it, that you're going to get things in this world and that God is going to just give you more money and more friends and more peace and more prosperity is false. As a matter of fact, it is guilt-laden heresy. It puts on you something that God never put on you. Look, if your life is hard right now, if you've got problems, you've got people suffering in your life, 
uh, you don't have enough money, you're struggling, it's not because you don't have enough faith. It's not because you, it's not you. It's not your, your faith that needs to be activated. You can have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and problems all around you, church, because your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in heaven. I want you to know that for these Ephesian Christians, they, 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 they repent, they turn from their sins, and immediately things get harder. But they cling to Jesus anyway. The town clerk in verse 35 finally begins to bring some calm to the crowd. The town clerk, finally, after two hours of them chanting, he gets their attention. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? And the, the, the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. What he's saying here is this. He's saying, look, remember that mediator that fell from the sky and that was proof that Zeus was sending us Artemis? Nobody can deny that. Nobody can deny that we have the temple to Artemis. Nobody's going to take this from us, guys. You're, 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 you're freaking out over stuff. You're freaking out over this movement where people are stopping by. Nobody's going to take from us the worship of Artemis. That's what he's basically saying. And he's trying to chill out the crowd because he's acting politically. You see, in the Roman Empire, if Ephesus was having a riot of sorts and they couldn't clearly show why it was deserved if there was some kind of matter that really should have been handled in the court but they lost control of the people and they're rioting in the theater he's basically saying look we could be charged from rome we could be charged of rioting and that would not be good for us and so he's acting politically calming down the crowds and he gets them calm he says, look, we are in danger of rioting for no cause. And he dismisses the crowd. And that's how the story ends. What are some lessons for us for today? From Acts chapter 19, this ancient story of a riot when the, when the statues of Artemis were no longer being sold. What can we learn we don't live in ancient Ephesus. We don't live with all of the mysticism, superstition, and mythological religions of Ephesus. But we live in modern-day Baltimore City, United States of America, the modern-day world, 21st century, with all of its own mysticism, superstition, and mythological religions. We discussed these superstitious, mystic mythological religions last week in great depth. And so I'm not going to go into too much depth to recap all of that, but these are the fraudulent saviors that we discussed last week. Fraudulent saviors that we look for to find our significance and our satisfaction and our safety. And these fraudulent saviors, saviors church, they, they, uh, there's a real cost that comes with them. They cost your money. They cost you of your time. They cost you of your relationships. They cost you of your emotions. And there are complete industries built around these fraudulent saviors. Some that I mentioned last week would be something as simple as crystals and stones that are worn to protect ourselves, to activate some kind of spirituality, to find some kind of hope in them. Of course, a complete industry built around these things. Pornography. Pornography is an industry that promises satisfaction that only God can give. And it's an industry that's worth $97 billion. Ashley Madison is a website that helps people commit adultery. And the Ashley Madison company is worth $1 billion. Complete industries built around idols that promise you something that will not deliver. There's $150 billion spent in 2016, according to a, a, a study that took place that year, $150 billion spent on weed, cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. A massive industry 
that promises significance, safety, satisfaction that you can only find in Christ. Not to mention, church, billions and billions of dollars spent on materialistic pursuits. You know, I can't pick up a, some material thing necessarily and say that all material things are sinful. They're not. As a matter of fact, we should count our blessings for the wonderful things that God has given us. If you have a, a, a place to sleep at night, a comfortable bed, praise God for that. I am so thankful for my bed. <laughs> my pillow is wonderful, right? But listen, materialism is when we believe that one more pillow, one more thing, one more car, one more pair of whatever, one more t-shirt, one more house, one more vacation, one more wonderful trip to the grocery store, whatever that is, that one more purchase will finally bring me the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Oh, we have way too much stuff. And it, it just testifies against us sometimes that we actually believe our hope is found in what we can buy. Materialism, billions of dollars that are spent. Listen, when you become a Christian, you realize that your hope is found in the death of one man. That one person died, and that through his death, that you have all of the significance, satisfaction, and safety that all of these other idols promise. When you become a Christian, you realize that your greatest threat against finding significant satisfaction and safety is actually in what we call sin. That sin has separated us from the giver of all of these good things. And as a result of our sinful pursuits, we are robbed of all satisfaction, of all safety, and of all significance. As a matter of fact, in our sin, we are heading toward utter and complete destruction under the curse of death. But one man died. And through his death, many are saved. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the death that we deserve. He took all of, of, of our faults and our failures, all of the things that have robbed us of our joy. He took that on the cross and he bore the wrath of God in our place. And the Bible says that all who trust in him are adopted into the family of God. Track with me now. And receive, according to Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing. Now, I didn't say every physical blessing. That is to come, all right? We are going to one day be physically hooked up. But that's only when Jesus returns and the whole earth is now ours. But in this world, we are sojourners and strangers. However, he has not kept back one spiritual blessing, meaning there is not a spiritual blessing in heaven that God has not given his saints. So in Christ, adopted into his family, we are recipients of all of these spiritual blessings. What are they? Well, I'll just name a few. Forgiveness, justification, sonship, family, heart and mind renewed, peace, hope, confidence, assurance. I could go on. He's given us, listen, He's given us the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. God's very own Spirit has come to dwell in us, seal us, preserve us until that day of redemption. In Christ, church, I'm telling you, there is true significant satisfaction and safety that is to be found in a way that all of these other fraudulent saviors will promise but will not be able to deliver. Now, with supposedly 205 million Christians in America, we ought to be draining the economy of all of these idolatrous practices. So three le or two lessons I want to give you. Two lessons. Number one, Christian change, real Christian change, affects the economy. Real Christian change affects jobs. In 1849, the United States was in the throes of controversy over the slavery question. And the divide was not merely north and south, but even in the south, there were Christian pastors who were divided on the subject. 
is this correspondence back and forth, which I've read and studied a number of times between William Buck and J.M. Pendleton. William Buck was a pro-slavery pastor who, writing for the banner, referred to slavery as benevolence to the poor and the defenseless. J.M. Pendleton was against slavery, also in, the, in Kentucky, in the South. And he responded to the Louisville Examiner and called slavery a mysterious prejudice. Now, I was just recently rereading these, and one thing I noticed was that Buck, who's the pro-slavery guy, all right, Buck, in his argument, was very pragmatic. He touched on Bible verses, but it was mostly pragmatism, meaning the ends justifies the means. Meaning uh, it works. It works out. And so he argued for the economy. He said if we get rid of slavery, there's going to be more poverty. It's going to gut the economy in the South. Slaves will be poor, he argued. It was very pragmatic. Pendleton, on the other hand, basically said, I don't care. I'm looking at biblical theology. And Pendleton argued not from a pragmatic, pick-and-choose Bible verses sort of way, but Pendleton worked from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Revelation, went through biblical theology, and basically showed that American slavery is completely against the Bible. My point in in, uh, saying this is, is twofold. One is that there are those who will cling to their idolatrous practices, pick and choose from the Bible for pragmatic reasons to cling to economic uh, uh, success. You see what I'm saying? But a true Christian says, no, the economy is always secondary to doing what's right. Like, even if there's money fallout, it's it's doing what's right. It's doing what honors God that matters. Not just trying to save our economy. I use that as an example to say that when there's true Christian change, it does affect the economy. It affects real jobs. The Christian message, when rightly lived out, doesn't care about cash as much as it is concerned about what is right. The Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 19 gave us a whole chapter on this subject. A lot of detail, like there's so many things in Acts where we just kind of blow through and go through quickly, and the Holy Spirit kind of slows down on this point and says, let me draw out some detail here. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that real Christian change affects the society that we live in. It overturns the society. It upends the society. It turns Ephesus upside down. The Holy Spirit gave us an entire chapter to show us that you cannot be convicted of your magic arts and continue to buy the books. You can't be convicted of your magic arts without changing in such a way to where you burn it all down. But saints, at this point, we've got to pause and we've got to lament because syncretism is a problem in our American Christianity. Supposedly 205 people, million people in America profess Christianity. And I'm concerned that many, if not most of those, are not truly Christians because we've embraced syncretism. It's time we learn a new word. Everybody say syncretism. Syncretism is the idea of blending two or more religions into something new. So, for example, in Ephesus, syncretism would have looked like a believer saying, you know what, I'm going to cling to Jesus and I'm also going to occasionally check out my magic art books for some tools and for some additional resources on finding some hope and security in this world. That's syncretism. Syncretism would have looked like Christians saying, hey, you don't have to give up Artemis. As a matter of fact, it might be helpful to have a little statue of Artemis in your house, just in case, because there's probably, you know, there's been some proof that she does help with fertility, maybe. 
It's blending two things. It's saying we can cling to Jesus, we can call ourselves a Christian, we can go to church every Sunday, and you can also have your idol and not give it up. Cling to it. Cling to your fraudulent spiritualities. That's syncretism. Church, this is why Israel was kicked out of the land in the Old Testament. It was because of syncretism. It's because they wanted to worship Yahweh and they wanted to cling to the, to the false religions of the land. In Zephaniah's day, this was the problem. Uh, uh, Zephaniah said in Zephaniah 1.5, 1, he said, uh, facing the reality that they're going to lose the land. He says, there are those, meaning Jews, there are those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet also swear by Milcom. Meaning you can't swear to Yahweh and also swear to the god Milcom. You cannot bow down to God and also bow down to the altars of the world. That's syncretism. And God calls that a false religion. Green and uh, yellow, I'm, this is off the top of my head, help me out, makes what? Blue. I like it. Let's go with it. <laughs> well, actually, it's blue and yellow. Make green. All right, here we go. Thank you. Blue and yellow make a new color. Green is not blue. Green is not yellow. Syncretism takes two religious practices and makes something new. And God says that is not Christianity. Some things just don't blend together. My wife blends some weird things together sometimes. We have a blender at home, and she eats, like, really healthy, you know? And I remember a couple months ago, she was in the kitchen blending things, and my daughters and I are watching her, and she put juice in there and some banana in there and some spinach. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird, you know? And then some kale, like, getting stranger. Uh, and then she put like some kind of chocolate, like chocolate nibs or something like that, some kind of chocolate flavor in there. And we're like, all right, you just, you just did it. You don't blend chocolate with kale. <laughs> or spinach. And then she put a chicken breast in there and a rice cake and a, and a whole piece of salmon. <laughs> just kidding. But my point is, like, there, there are just things that, that don't blend well together, right? And we tasted her, her concoction, and it was proof. It did not blend well together. <laughs> Look, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it is not a potluck meal. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we, we take His body which is broken for us, and we take His blood, which is poured out for us, these symbols, and we eat those, and we don't bring our own flavors to the table. When have we ever asked you to bring, everybody bring something for the Lord's Supper? No, it's delivered to you, and it's specific. It's the body and the blood. And I think so often we go about our Christian life saying, you know what, I want the body and the blood, but I also need to bring something else to the table. I need to bring my own little flavor to the table. I need to bring my own bit of wisdom that, that I've come up with, the, uh, these, these things that I believe will really help me get through. Of course, i got to have Jesus too, but I need these other things as well. And we're trying to bring that to the Lord's table. And all I'm saying is this, is your idols don't blend well with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Not in Christ. Plus, Artemis, magic arts, and all of the other idols that you give yourselves over to. No, it's in Christ alone. My hope is found. And family, listen, when you, look at, at, when you look at what passes for so much of Christianity today, it is straight syncretism. I sometimes see, not in this church, thankfully, but sometimes I'll see professing Christians literally arguing and debating as to whether or not an open marriage is a good idea. I see professing Christians clinging to their ethnic prejudices more than clinging to Jesus. 
I see professing Christians pledging allegiance to political parties just as much as they want to pledge allegiance to Jesus. I just spoke about abortion this past week, and in my studies I uh, saw that one out of five abortions are performed, or I'm sorry, received by uh, uh, people who profess to be conservative, theologically conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians. And when we see that kind of stuff, we've got to ask ourselves, are we really any different than the world? You know, when pornography is, is so normalized that it's just every man's, you know, every, every, every guy looks at it, every Christian man struggles with it, we've got to ask ourselves, church, are we really any different than the world? When we come to church on Sundays and then as soon as church is over, we go over to our buddies to get high. We've got to ask ourselves, are we really any different than the world? When we pursue materialistic goods as gods, one more purchase, one more thing, one more house, one more car, one more t-shirt, one more pair of shoes, whatever that might be. When we think that our salary and our neighborhood that we live in and our possessions define our worth, we've got to ask ourselves, are we any different than the world? My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and blown, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. So I rejoice in my Redeemer. He's the greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Church, I'm calling for nothing short of repentance. May we repent of our syncretism. May we repent of blending our fraudulent saviors with the blood of Jesus. Now let me just say one more thing before I close and, and I'm done. As this Christian change took place and as it was so powerful that it affected the economy, as it took place, it was not done by a program or a campaign, it happened through repentance. What I mean by that is they didn't have a burn the book program. They didn't institute a end Artemis campaign. This is actually what uh, the town clerk recognizes in verse 37. He says, you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our gods. Meaning they weren't out there campaigning against buying statues. It, it just happened. Don't you see this? Like, they didn't have to. They didn't have to tell those who were convicted of their magic arts to burn their books because they were repentant. They didn't have to tell those who turned from these idols and said idols are nothing and my, cry, my, my hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. They didn't have to tell them to stop buying Artemis. It just happened because it was true repentance, church. What does this look like for your life? What economy do we need to drain in your life? If you were to stop your idolatrous syncretism. What might, that, uh, what, what might the effect be? I mean, there should be some real change. There's, there should be some real effect. But how does it happen? It doesn't happen through me just finding whatever that idolatrous thing is in your life and then starting some kind of multi-million dollar campaign or program to try to end it. It happens through the Holy Spirit taking residence in your life and drawing you to true repentance. That's, that's what happened. Is the Holy Spirit moved in. The Holy Spirit was alive and active in their life. Church, how do people change? It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. In Romans, Paul tells us it's through the renewal of our mind. It's through God through His Spirit, doing a work inwardly so that we have new desires 
and new passions. It means something has changed drastically inside of us and now we look differently. And what does he do? He doesn't turn us to our guilt. He turns us to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His marvelous grace. The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Turn your eyes to Jesus, church. We are so used to bringing other things to the table. And I'm telling you, it's only Christ. All of your other stuff that you bring is worthless. A friend of mine who used to be part of this church, Brandon, we used to go out occasionally to restaurants. And whenever we would go out, I would always go to try to pay. And, and he would tell me, he would say, oh, I'm sorry, your, your money's no good in this restaurant. They don't accept your card here. They don't accept your cash here. That was always his, his thing. And what I'm trying to tell you, church, is that when you come to the kingdom of God, that God is saying to you, your money is no good here. It's no good. You can't bring anything to bring salvation to your soul in this world. So stop trying. Leave all that behind. And what you find is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. Do you see His hands? Do you see His feet? Do you see his, the crown on his, on his skull? Do you see Christ wounded for you? Do you see that in His death you have been adopted into the family of God not by anything that you bring, but by grace alone you are saved. We love, listen, we love God because He first loved us. When we look to Jesus, we look into the face of love. We are changed. And that's what repentance looks like. It looks like the love of God changing us to where we say, I love Him more than anything else. We sing the song, My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, thou art. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, it is now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing thy thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, it is now. Oh, I'll love thee in death, life, and I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now.